Father, we thank you that the, the promise of that ancient scripture is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Peace has come for our King is with us. And as we open your word today, Father, may we understand, not just in our head, but our heart, how true it is that we can have a peace unaffected by the troubles of this world. For that we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to uh, Central. If you're a guest of ours, my name is uh, Craig, and it's my privilege, as Steve said, to kick off this series entitled The Promised Gift, The Promised Gift, where we're going to look over the, the next few weeks at the gift of Jesus and all that that brings. When we begin today with peace, we'll talk about righteousness. We'll talk about joy the promised gift. I heard the other day about a group of people who were discussing the worst Christmas gift ever received. And one woman said, well, listen, the worst Christmas gift has to be what my father bought my mother one year. She said, he brought her a DVD. Now, in and of itself, of course, a DVD isn't a bad gift, I suppose, except it was a rental. <laughs> and they didn't own a DVD player. Now, when I read that, it kind of made me feel kind of relieved a little bit, quite honestly, for some of the dumb gifts that I've kind of bought my wife in particular. But as you get older, you get wiser. At least you should. If you're not, you're in trouble, right? Well, Black Friday's behind us. Some of you, like my wife, may have got up at an ungodly time of day because our teenage kids wanted to go shopping, so she got up at four, and I went back to bed, uh, enjoyed the day, but that means we're in full throes of buying Christmas gifts, and, and so we just thought, what a great opportunity, what a great time to just remind us of the great gift of Jesus and all that that brings, and as I said, today I want to talk about the gift of peace. Now, we read in Luke's gospel that right at the start of the Christmas story, the shepherds are in the fields, and, and they just get the glimpse of angels praising God, and, and these angels say, glory to God in the highest, and then it says, and on earth, peace on whom his, God's favor rests. Think about that. Peace to those on whom God's favor rests. So right at the start of the Christmas story, a connection is made between peace and God's favor. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you'd realize that this is actually a theme that is present right at the start of the Scriptures, peace and God's favor. One of the earliest references to peace is still one of the most cited it's Numbers chapter 6, 24 through 26. It's what is known as the Aaronic blessing. That's not ironic. I know it sounds like that to you. That's after Aaron, Moses' brother, who was a part of the, or was the, the first priest. And, and this was a blessing that was so important that only the priests could give it. So the people would come together, and after they'd uh, kind of met together, they'd be dismissed with, with this blessing. And this is what it says. 
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Now, if you're fairly new to the church, these words are really puzzling. If you've been in the church for a while, you may well have been in a service where at the end of the service, the pastor would kind of raise his hands and he would, you know, kind of utter these words. And it kind of makes you think, okay, what's going on here, right? Is there actually power in merely reciting this word, these words? I mean, are they magic? Or is there really divine power being transmitted in this benediction, this blessing? Or is it simply a way of telling us all that it's time to go home and he's actually finished? This was no ordinary blessing. Only the priests could give it. More than that, if you look at it, you'll notice something significant. Three times in three lines of text in the Hebrew, the divine name is used, Yahweh, the Lord. Whatever is going on here is actually connected to who God is, the divine name, Yahweh. And as you look deeper into it, you see the divine name is actually attached to what I'm going to call three movements that lead to peace. The first line here says, the Lord, Yahweh, bless you and keep you. That word keep is the word Shema. May he keep you. May he guard you. In other words, the divine being, God's, protects his people. The last part of this says, may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. It talks about provision. So you have the, the divine being both protecting, watching, and providing. But sandwiched in between is the important part of this that is often overlooked in the pursuit of peace in the world. It's this idea of God's grace. God himself provides grace. And part of the reason for that is, as you begin to look and dig deeper into the Old Testament text, you realize that God's people needed that grace. Because they were prone to slip up. They were weak. Over and over again, they would be exposed to temptation, to despair in their pursuit of peace. And they would fret. And they would try and basically achieve this peace on their own. But right at the very beginning, right here in this blessing, it's as if God was drawing their attention to the fact that the source of blessing that they seek. The source of this peace is God himself. And what's interesting is this word peace is the Hebrew word shalom, and that doesn't simply mean the absence of conflict. No, peace in the Hebrew language actually refers to wholeness or fullness. It refers to blessing. It means prosperity. So everything that they would seek in life is actually going to be achieved because the divine name, God himself, does what? He protects them, and he provides for them. He's the source of it. But it's also going to be achieved because this divine being gives them grace in those moments where they're tempted to seek it outside of him. And this is one of the dangers of Christmas, that we try and seek peace, and joy outside of God himself. And that temptation 
is a temptation that God knew right from the very beginning his people and all people would be tempted to succumb to. And so what we can say is right at the beginning, peace is not just the absence of conflict, it's actually the active presence of God himself. Peace is achieved when God watches over his people, gives us grace in those moments when we fail, and despite our failure, constantly provides us with the promise of himself, with his fullness, with his blessing. Now, this is what was meant to be understood in this ironic blessing of, of Numbers chapter 6. But unfortunately, as we go through the Old Testament, we discover that God's people sought peace outside of Him. And so, for a few moments, I want to trace this through the, the kind of Old Testament ending with the prophetic books. Look at how they pursued peace. And, and when we get into it, right from the beginning, we see in the book of Exodus that they pursued peace by trying to negotiate for it. But in Exodus 34 verse 12, God says, hey guys, be careful who you're negotiating with. They try to pursue peace through negotiation. Secondly, we see in the historical books that they try to pursue peace through eliminating everyone who stood in their way. It's the old adage that I want peace even if it means I go to war to get it. And we see in Second Chronicles, for example, even good kings like Josiah, who found a copy of the law in the wall and uh, as he was renovating the, the place, and, and then he looked at it and it was the first time it was read in such a long time, and he kind of restored the people to worship, he kind of wanted to see God's peace, God's blessing over the land, and so he decided it would be a really good thing if he fought against the king of Egypt. But the only problem was God hadn't told him to do it. In fact, if you read the text, it seems as though God spoke to the Pharaoh and told him to do what he was doing. But Josiah thought, hey, God has promised us peace, and that means we need to go to war in order to get it. We need to eliminate everything from our life and from our sphere of influence in order to achieve this peace of God. And ever since then, people have been doing the same thing. We kind of think that peace is found in the absence of all of these things that disturb our peace, when in reality God is saying, that's not the case at all. And slowly over time, people would go back to the, to the ancient promise about God giving His peace, and they would start to realize that this was not their experience at all. And so we start to see leaders coming up, pontificating about peace, talking about it. Talking it up over and over again. But as you, if you dig through the Scriptures on the screen, you'll see that God says they weren't going to find it because He'd actually withdrawn His peace from them. And, and so this leads us to the point in time where we get to the prophetic books. And in the prophetic books, like Isaiah, that was referred to right at the start of the service, God raises up prophets to get them to contemplate again what peace is, how peace works, and how they get to experience it. And what's interesting is in the book of Isaiah, right there in chapter 2, God starts to help them to see that He's going to be at the heart of this movement of peace. 
He's going to be the one that's going to judge between nations. It's going to cause people to put away their weapons and actually do something that was beyond comprehension. And then we go into Isaiah chapter 9, that famous passage of Scripture where we recognize that God now says he's going to do something else. Not only is he going to do a work of peace, he's actually going to give them the gift of the Prince of Peace himself. The virgin would bear a child, the prophet foresees, and the child would be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then he goes on again in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3. And in Isaiah 26 and verse 3, he says something really interesting. He says these words, you will keep, speaking of God, God, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast. You see, God was causing them to, to contemplate, to think about peace in a new way, not to pursue it through negotiation and elimination, not just to talk about it, but to think about it in a new way. He will keep in peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Now, we have a new idea. We have the idea that God is going to give us the gift of the Prince of Peace, and the Prince of Peace is going to lead us into peace. But those who experience that peace are going to experience God-keeping. We've heard that word before in connection with peace. May the Lord keep you, Numbers chapter 6. Now, in Numbers chapter 6, the word peace is the word Shema. Watch it. The picture here is of a, of a parent who's watching their infant child making sure that they're okay. But we all realize, right, that watching our infant child means nothing unless you're actually willing to step in and do something when that child is threatened. And so the word in Isaiah 26 and verse 3 for keep is not the word shema, it's the word netzah. This word basically means not just to watch, it means to step in even in a military context. It means to guard those who are being besieged. God not only watches over us as his children, guess what? In those moments when we are being besieged, overrun, overcome, the scripture says God steps in. In. God will keep those whose what? Minds, hold on to this, minds are steadfast in Him. There's something about peace that connects God's willingness to step in when we're under attack and our mind's willingness to be steadfast to what we know to be true. The prerequisite for this, trust, because they trust in you. We see the progression, peace, 
they negotiated for it, they tried to eliminate people for it, they started talking about it. God gets them to contemplate peace in a new way. He says, listen, this peace is going to come to you through the Prince of, Prince of Peace, but guess what? I want you to know that even as this Prince of Peace works, I, through him, I'm going to be standing up and I'm going to be protecting you, but you need to keep your mind sharp and you need to put your faith in me because I'm going to do something that you won't believe or understand. And so Isaiah goes on, and we know the scriptures in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. This is what we read, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And here we go. And the punishment that brought us peace, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we were healed. Why? Because we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it's as if Isaiah is saying that we receive peace not by negotiating for it, not by eliminating those who stand in the way of it, or even just talking about it. No, we receive peace by recognizing that the Prince of Peace absorbed the source of all of our trouble in his own body. That's the way we receive peace. Now, you may be new to the church and the Christian faith, and you may be wondering, how, how does this work? Well, allow me to explain peace like this. Think of peace like a bridge. On either side of the bridge, you have two realities. The one reality is what I'm going to call the objective reality, that which is true. The other side of the bridge is what I'm calling the subjective reality, and that is our experience. Peace is like a bridge. According to the scriptures, peace is based on the idea that we find peace in the God of peace. That's who God is. Peace is what we would call a communicable attribute. Communicable attribute basically means that because this is what God is, we get to benefit from what God is. God is love. Guess what? We get to experience that love because it's what God is. God is peace. And because God is peace, guess what? We get to experience God's peace. Peace is a communicable attribute. And so over and over again in the Scriptures, we read of God being called a God of peace. There are so many. If you download the sermon questions on this, you'll see a lot of Scriptures on, on this message. But this is just one example. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, may this God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May the peace of God equip you, God's peace. We receive peace from the God of peace. To get to the point of peace, it starts with the objective. The objective truth that God is a God of peace. This is a communicable attribute, meaning that what God is, God gives. May God, number 626, give you peace. And we say, how do I get this peace? It begins with realizing that God is a God of peace, but then it moves on from there to realize that we find peace when we make peace with God. This is the objective side of the bridge. God is a God of peace. He wants to give us that peace. God gives what He is, but in order to receive that 
gift of peace, we need first to find peace with God. I'm sure over Christmas at some point, we're going to sing that carol, and in that carol, there is this line, peace on earth, mercy mild, you know the rest, God and sinners, reconciled. Peace and reconciliation. Somehow they seem to go hand in hand. Peace and getting right with God. Why do we need peace with God? Romans 5.10 tells us that before Jesus, we were enemies of God. Why? Because we were separated from Him by something called sin, which is the trouble and the source of all the trouble, rather, that we all face in life. And you see, we're led into a, into a kind of secret here, and, and that is that peace is not something that is out there. Peace begins with dealing with something that is actually in here. We need peace with God. Why? Because God is a God of peace, and God gives us what He is. We can't actually receive God without dealing with the very thing that stops us living in peace and experiencing peace. What is peace? It's not just conflict. It's wholeness. It's righteousness. It's all that God is. And so, as we move into the New Testament, we have this idea that with the gift of the Prince of Peace, that becomes the development of this idea of Isaiah 53, that the punishment for our peace was put on him, and we start to read scriptures like this, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Peace with God actually comes through the, peace, the, the prince of peace. Romans 5.1 puts it like this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Isaiah said in chapter 26, verse 3? God will keep, God will actually protect, God will besiege all of those things, external and internal, that come to destroy that peace. He will keep us in peace, peace provided that we, what? Keep our minds steadfast and we trust in Him. God wants to give us peace because it's who God is. But in order to give us peace, we first need to be reconciled with the fact that the conflict that we struggle with is not out there. It actually is in here. This is the objective side of peace that is true no matter what we feel. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what is happening in your life. But I know this, when we recognize that the God of peace enables us to have peace with Him, it changes everything because it changes our perspective. I remember that moment when I was what we would call reconciled to God. When, when I put my trust in Jesus Christ, everything changed. Even though in reality, the world outside, the moment I committed my life to Christ, never changed at all. But because God had put me right, he was now going to put the world right through 
me. Through changing me, he was now going to change the world. Because the reality of peace is we are not given peace to keep, we are given peace to share. And the truth of this is, the moment that we are put right with God, it's not as if everything is perfect straight away. But it is also true that everything changes like night and day. As I was thinking about how to illustrate this, I was, earlier this week, I was sitting in the front room, Thursday morning actually, Thanksgiving morning, and in the front room, I've got the ability to kind of look over the fields, there's a cornfield on one side, and you know, there are, there are lots of trees and other kinds of things, beautiful grass, and the clouds were thick, they were dark, they were gloomy. Vipka had come in and told me that a number of our neighbors had lost power through the winds that came through. Man, that must have been a great Thanksgiving for all of you guys but we never did, and, and I was just sitting there thankful, looking at all of the clouds, kind of surveying the fact that through the rain there was water on the grass and the wind had actually broken some of the branches that I'd have to pick up, and, and, and you know, it was dark and gloomy. But then around 7.55, a break in the clouds happened, and slowly all of the clouds just seemed to evaporate. And so 15 minutes later, there was not a cloud in the sky. Now, the reality is there was still water on the ground. There were still branches from the wind that were broken on the ground. The temperature hadn't changed at all. But any, any of you know what it's like when the clouds break and the sun shines? Do you know what that feels like? Now, we live right by the lakeshore, and so we know that in the middle of July and August, we can have dark clouds outside and the temperature is really hot. But how many of you, like me, would trade anything to have white snow and blue sky rather than the thick clouds of summer? Thank you. You would. <laughs> the reality is in a moment like that, on Thursday morning, nothing had changed. There was still water on the ground. There were still branches that had been broken. The temperature was still the same. But the sun shone. See, the minute we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it, the Bible in number six basically said God puts, shines his face on us. And in that moment, even though the world outside may not have changed, even though our troubles may not have changed in that moment, everything has changed because the sun shines on us. In, in that moment, we have peace with God and everything changes. And I tell you, in my life, in that moment, everything changed. I was yet to see the fruit of that change, but believe me, I saw so much change, and so much change has happened in me because I received peace with God. Now, here's the point. Those of you who have been followers of Jesus for a long time would realize that sometimes we can go through life and through a season of life, and it's as if the dark clouds are there and we see no sun at all. It's, it's as if God has hidden his face from us. What do we do with that? Remember, peace is like a bridge. On the one side of this bridge is the objective truth that God is a God of peace. Peace is a communicable attribute. That means that what God is, I get to experience. How do I experience that? I experience that by having peace with God. And in that moment, everything changes, even though so many things in my life are yet to change. 
But hey, wait a minute, we go through seasons where we, we don't experience that peace of God, that wholeness of God, that fullness of God, that blessing of God, that prosperity of God in the way the Scripture declares we can. And, and see, th- this, is, this is the path where we need to walk over that bridge from what is true to what we experience. And that's the other side of the bridge. It's experience. Now, I want to make something pretty clear here because there's, there's something we, we often communicate unintentionally. Peace is a bridge, the objective, and what is true is on one side, the subjective, and what we experience is on the other. And we need to walk across that bridge. Make no mistake, in the Scriptures, God is that bridge. God is the girder that we walk across. The Bible says we need to put our faith in Him. But if that faith that we need to put in Him only comes from us, then faith is a work. The faith that we need comes from God Himself, and it involves our choice. And somehow, in a way that we cannot comprehend or understand, God gives us the faith and we exercise it. In the same way with peace. What we're going to discover is the pathway to peace leads us to experience the peace of God when we choose the peace of God. But make no mistake about it, that is a spiritual encounter with God that is so profound that in that moment, whereas previously we were only able to wrestle, in that one moment God has done something, and even though the world outside hasn't changed in terms of our experience of it, something has so drastically changed that we can say, I have peace, even though the world is raging outside. So we get to move from the objective to the subjective, from what is true to what we experience when we choose peace. But make no mistake about it, God is at the heart of our ability to do this. We need God. Three times the divine name is used. All throughout Scripture, God says, I am going to do this thing. God does this thing. But we need to wrestle with the fact that sometimes our experience of peace doesn't match up to what we know the Scripture teaches. But we find the gift of peace when we choose the peace of God. And we do so because the God of peace wants to give us Himself, and He is peace. A couple of Scriptures with this to help us navigate through it. John 14, 27, Jesus said this, Peace I leave with you. Why does Jesus have the right to give us peace? Because He is the Prince of Peace. And through his obedience in going to the cross, he basically dealt with the source of all of our conflict, of all of our strife, of all of our anxiety. And as a result, he can give us that peace. And notice this, he says, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you peace as the world gives. How does the world strive for peace? It negotiates for, for it. It eliminates those who stand in the way, and it will talk about it till kingdom come. But that's not the way that God gives us peace. No, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I love that. Somehow here, Jesus is talking about a peace that is unaffected by trouble. In the United Kingdom a number of years ago, I remember reading or or looking or hearing at a news segment about a couple who were so alarmed at the threat of nuclear war that they decided that they were going to try and find the safest place on earth to live. 
And so they studied and they traveled and they traveled and they studied and eventually they moved to what they considered to be the safest place on earth. It was Christmas and they sent their pastor a postcard from none other than the Falkland Islands. It made news in the UK because shortly after that postcard, Britain, the country that I'm from, and Argentina went to war over that island. See, if you pursue peace, Jesus is saying, in those things that are out there, you'll never discover it. And in case we don't get the point, Jesus kind of repeats the same idea in John chapter 16 and verse 33. So he says, look, I want to give you my peace, not the peace in the way the world gives it. I want to give you my peace. And so he talks in chapter 14, he talks in chapter 15, he talks in chapter 16, and he comes back to it at the end of chapter 16. I told you these things, he says, so that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's why I love the song, Tremble. Some of us may be uncomfortable with the idea of these kind of militaristic songs where Jesus overcomes and everything else, but you can't understand peace unless you realize that God keeps you in it. And that isn't, he's a benevolent God who kind of created the world and then went away, deism, and just left the world to its own devices. No, he actually steps in, Natsar. He stepped in in the person of Jesus. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus says, I've overcome the world. God guards our peace. And since that's true, it should be our experience. So what Jesus seems to be saying then is that there is a peace in this world that is experienced in the absence of trouble. And friends, I pray that that would be your experience in this season. I really do. It is so good to have peace when there's no conflict, when there's no trouble, who wouldn't want that? But Jesus says, listen, far better than that is a peace that is unaffected by trouble. In this world, you will have trouble, but don't worry, I have overcome the world. So the question is, how do we find it? How do we find it? How do we get to that point of experiencing God's peace? couple of scriptures for you as we wrap this up. Philippians 4, 7. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi says this, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard or will keep your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Where have we heard keep or guard and mind before? Isaiah 26, 3. And this word keep here means to stand at post, to actively guard against enemy attack. It's the same idea, Nitzah. Same idea. Remember, peace is a communicable attribute of God, meaning that what God is, we receive it. Here we recognize the peace of God is something that God guards. He guards it. And he gives it. I haven't got time to go into Galatians chapter 5, you know, 22, 23, fruits of the Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit are what? Peace and self-control. When we receive the Christ, when we acknowledge what Christ has done, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We receive the gift of God himself. And the Spirit of God is as much God as God the Father is. He is the same attitude towards sin and he is the, the same 
attributes, and he gives us who he is. Our lives can be calmness in the storm because God is with us, and God is a God who is unaffected by the troubles of this world. And since that is true, we can also, in our own experience, be unaffected by the troubles in our own lives. God is active in protecting our peace because the enemy, Jesus says, is active in trying to take us from it. And so in John 14 and 16, we read that basically peace, biblical peace is unaffected by trouble. Now what's interesting is in Philippians 4 from 7 through 13, it talks about peace being achieved and being possible without us having any kind of money at all or even when our circumstances are not great. In other words, it doesn't matter how much money you've got or not. It doesn't matter how healthy you are or how sick you are. God can give you peace because he's given you himself. So the peace of God is experienced because God is actively working to protect it because God is in you and God is peace. So here's the million-dollar question then, right? If God is actively working to protect my peace and he's given me himself and he is peace, what do I need to do to experience this on the other side of the bridge? I wonder how many of you are going through something right now and you're anxious about it. Maybe you're waking up at night. Maybe you're fretting. Maybe you're a little bit snappy with some work colleagues or some kids because there's something on the inside is, is really irritating you. It's really making you anxious. See, you know who God is, but your experience of it isn't kind of working right now. What do you do? And I love this scripture. Let the peace of Christ rule. What do we do? We let the peace of Christ rule. See, the peace of Christ already reigns. You have peace with God. But the question is not whether the peace of Christ reigns. The question is, does the peace of Christ rule in your heart? Since as members of one body, you are called to peace. You know, the calling in your life is not the thing that you do. It's a calling to peace. That word rule basically means to umpire. Let the peace of Christ act as an umpire behind your weakness, behind your temptation to despair, between your temptation to get anxious. Let the the peace of God rule between all of that and what we heard right at the beginning in Numbers chapter 6 that we saw in Isaiah 26, that we see in Philippians chapter 4. That God protects you and God has provided for you all that you need. Let the peace of Christ rule. God's provision is available, but you have to choose. And what I love about Colossians 3 is it's basically based on what I would call conditional eschatology, which is something the Reformed theologians don't like. It's the idea of the significance of choice. Friends, this is not a command. This is a plea. If you're in a season where you are tempted to despair, let the peace of Christ rule. Let it rule. And I'll come back to what I said earlier on. This is that moment right here, which is where God does his work in bringing you to the point of letting go and letting God, and you do yours. And in that moment, everything changes. 
I was reading this week about a a teacher who went to preach and teach in Oregon, and uh, at the end of a service, a man came forward to him with cancer, and he asked that teacher to, to pray for healing for him. In the middle of the following week, that teacher received a phone call from the man's wife. She said, hey, I just want to let you know that you prayed for my husband, and he had cancer. The teacher heard the word had, and he was like, whoa, it happened. But then she said, he died. The preacher felt terrible. Don't feel bad, the woman said. When he came into church that Sunday, he was filled with anger. He knew he was going to be dead in a short space of time, and he just did not like God. He was 58 years old, and he wanted to see his children and his grandchildren grow up, and he felt that God was taking that away from him. He was angry that this all-powerful God didn't take away the cancer and heal him. He would lie in bed, and he would curse God. And the more his anger grew towards God, the wife said, the more miserable he became to me and everybody around him. It was an awful thing to be in his presence. After you prayed for him, she said, a peace came over him and a joy came into him that I cannot describe. The last three days, she said, have been the best days of our life. We've sung, we've laughed, we've read scripture, we've prayed. Oh, they have been incredible days. And I just want to call and thank you for laying hands on him and praying for his healing. And then she said this, he wasn't cured, but he was healed. I love that. He wasn't cured of his cancer, but he was healed of his anger. He was healed of his trouble. He was healed of his concern. Friends, make no mistake, a moment like that is a profound work of God that requires you and I to let the peace of Christ rule. And do you know what happened? And this is what I, I love about the peace of God. What happened was the peace that now ruled in that man's heart impacted his wife and his entire family. That in those moments that should have been the saddest days actually became days of incredible joy. See, we're in a season where we say over and over again that we have a great opportunity to just share Jesus with our unchurched, non-churched, and de-churched friends. And many of us think, how on earth can I do that? Friends, can I suggest to you the best way of sharing the good news of the Prince of Peace is to live in the peace he gives you? What does Matthew 5, 9 say? Blessed are the peacemakers. Or, or what about this one? Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Maybe the best good news that you can shed abroad this, uh, this Christmas season is actually to let the peace of Christ rule. Because the peace of Christ is not ours to keep. It's ours to share. We're never given God to keep him to ourselves. We're given God to share him with the world. And maybe the best good news that we can share in this season is not just to talk and to pontificate about the Prince of Peace, 
but actually to live him.